We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness this week is Anita Clear, who is the director of the Positive Parenting Project. She's also the author of the work Parent Switch, How to Parent Smarter, Not Harder. She was a strategic manager in a UK local authority children's services, managing family support. She's studied developmental psychology to postgraduate level, and she's an accredited parenting coach. Her blog is called Thinking Parenting, and she has two children herself. Now, when I was discovering all about you, I discovered that your children were born in Mongolia. I think most parents, or most mothers in particular, if you said to them, where in the world would you like to have your children? I don't think Mongolia would be very high up on the list. So how come? Well, I was working in Mongolia anyway, and it was that time of my life where I was with my partner and I got pregnant. We did actually come back for the birth, thankfully, because I probably wouldn't be here otherwise because it was oh, quite dear. a traumatic experience. But it was, shall we say, colourful being pregnant in Mongolia. I was about 30, 31, I think, at the time, which was considered very, very old for a first time mother in Mongolia. And I had the best doctor in the whole of the country who had the only ultrasound machine and insisted on using it every single time I saw him. And he basically told me the first time he confirmed the pregnancy with an ultrasound and said, you're very old. I suggest you go home, put your feet up for the next eight months and don't use any computers. Now, of course, I completely ignored that because I had a job to do and, and I carried on as as usual and, and had a very uneventful pregnancy. What was your job at the that point. So I was working in international development. I was the country director for VSO, so running a programme of volunteers in health and education and environmental support. Was the culture of being a parent or having children very different from our culture? Interesting question. Yes, it was. I mean, in some ways, I think being a parent is utterly universal. But there were certain things that I found odd and which really challenged my understanding of parenting. So for example, for mothers in Mongolia, even if they have young children, it's very common for them to leave those young children with grandparents and go off and work. Now, not as daycare, this is for months or even years that they would do that. So I knew many mothers who didn't have any contact at all with their children or very limited. Once a year, they might go and spend you know, a month in the countryside with their children. And of course, that really challenged my understanding of what is it to be a parent? Because for them, they were trying to create a life in very hard circumstances, in very difficult economic circumstances for their family. So this was something that was considered the mark of a good parent to do this not an act of abandonment in any way. So it, it certainly challenged some of my thinking. Because culture and how we look at parenting are sort of almost completely and utterly intertwined, aren't they? We, we forget that. We think there's one way, there's the right way. But actually, around the world, there are 
hundreds and thousands of different ways of being a parent. Absolutely. And right from the very first day, whether that's the principle of never putting a baby down, you know, which is very common in in certain cultures, that the baby is never put down. They're always held. They're passed from person to person within the extended family. I travelled with um, my son when he was born was quite remarkable looking for, you know, to be in Asia because he had bright blonde hair, which stood upright vertically from his head. And he was also, compared to Asian babies, he was quite large, you know, genetically, nutritionally, he was he was a large baby. So when we would travel around, many people would just come up and just take him away from us and take him home to show their family. And, 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 and we wouldn't really know where he was, which on the one hand was amazing. When you're sitting in a restaurant trying to eat and somebody, you know, you've got a crying baby and someone comes and takes them away, allows you to eat and then brings them back afterwards. But it's a different level of trust. I mean, they would take them home to show people and we would have crowds around us looking at, at the baby. So I, I think it's a it's an interesting experience to parent somewhere so very, very different. And was there anything that you learnt that you've taken forward from that period with that different cultural outlook on being a mother, for example? I think the most amazing thing about Mongolia is the sense of space. It has very few people in it and it is a huge landmass. So we had the privilege of letting my son run across fields. As soon as he could walk, he was chasing sheep and across enormous valleys and we could still see him. And even later, I went back to Mongolia with both the children when they were six and eight and they would go up hills by themselves. And I, I just gave them a whistle and said, if you're in trouble, just whistle. I, w- I will hear you. And, and that was so different from the experience here where we tend to keep children inside to keep them safe. We don't let them roam. And that, that freedom to roam, that space to roam and encounter the world in, in that very active, sort of playful, free way was something I really valued in the Mongolia experience. And I wanted to try and bring that back with me, you know, how I could in the UK. What was it like leaving there and then coming back as a parent into another culture, which obviously would be the UK culture? There was a certain amount of shock because I'd been there for four and a half years. So, you know, that that, that was difficult. I think initially it was just about trying to understand my own values because, you know, our values don't stay the same. They change through time. And and suddenly I had two children and then I was working in a, a much more traditional role in terms of, you know, within a, a UK local authority and just trying to work out what are the spaces in my family life for doing the things I want to do and it not being crowded out by the traffic, the the tiny house, the, you know, the rigid work hours. How do I find the spaces in this family life that we don't lose that sense of adventure and that we don't lose that sense of being able to spend time together in a very relaxed, very mindful, unpressured way? That, that to me, was hard. I'm interested in what makes life meaningful. And you're beginning to talk about values, which makes me feel, as I suspected, we're sort of on the same kind of page. Put values and meaning together for me, because I think that having a meaningful life is about values. So what do you think? 
I think it is. I mean, for me, a meaningful life has to involve a sense of purpose. The fact that I was in Mongolia, working in international development, everything I've ever done, and I've had quite a hodgepodge career in some ways, but they've all been geared towards trying to have an impact positively on people's lives. And to me, that's very important. And then, you know, going forward and working the role I do now with parents, it, it is for me about that impact that I have. And I get emails from from parents and messages saying thank you or telling me the impact that I've had on their lives if they've attended a seminar or or read the book. And, and, and to me, that makes my daily life meaningful to know that no matter how much I might struggle or get annoyed by anything that's going on, if the outcome of that is that somebody's life changes positively that gives me a sense of meaning. And I extend that to my family, to my friends, to my community in whatever way I can. That, that for me, is what makes a meaningful life. There are two areas that I think a lot of people get meaning from. One is from their work and one is from being a parent. But just the idea of the work parent switch says that actually these two things can be in competition with each other because your work is asking this for you. And, you know, in some cases, it's staying up late because you're working with countries on the other side of the world and they require your attention 100%. And children are also asking for a lot of attention too. So is there such a thing as the work parent switch? Well, one of the things that came across really strongly for me when I started working with parents was how exhausted working parents frequently are by that the sheer demands of working hard and I think parenting hard you know trying to make up for that and be the best parent and how actually you know they're getting squeezed out of the middle of that and how those two things don't always sit well together because work demands of us to be very focused on outcomes and on tasks and it's what I call efficiency thinking the idea that we need to achieve a certain task as quickly as possible, you know, within budget, on time. We're very fixated and very driven within the workplace. That's what modern jobs tend to demand of us. And they have very specific job specifications, don't they? You know, I'm a marital therapist. You know, my job is to talk about marriages and it's a very targeted thing. It finishes at certain times. My relationships with people are very focused and they have a job specification. I don't think you have job specifications and focusing and tight domains when it comes to parenting. Absolutely. You know, we have clear criteria for judging our success when we're working as professionals. But as a parent, actually, that needs a different set of skills. It needs us not to be focused on end goals because children are by nature, by the nature of their development, they're chaotic. They don't stick to a program. They don't like to get from A to B as quickly as possible because their brains aren't wired that way. They are 
wired to try and explore the universe and find out as much about it as possible. And if we're stuck in our work mode of my task right now is to get to the supermarket, buy some milk and get home as quickly as possible, and we've got a very young child who actually wants to jump in puddles and pick up sweet wrappers and completely go off task, then we get frustrated. And that frustration, I think, is as a result of us not really switching between those two different modes because parent mode is much more about being in the moment. It's much more about being open to possibilities, more curious, more empathetic skills that are required of us in that moment. And that's a real challenge to move seamlessly between those two different modes, particularly when we're so motivated and driven in work. Whereas in parenting, actually, we can get very frustrated and then we sort of either opt out or just end up shouting because, you know, we don't get it. We can't make our children work properly. I love that phrase, we can't make our children work properly. Did you ever really feel like that yourself? I certainly think parents that I speak to do. It's that sense that that my child isn't doing what they're supposed to do because they don't behave like colleagues or adults. And that ability just to step back and step into a, a young child's shoes is really important. So what I've tried to do with the book is to explain some very simple concepts around child development. What is it like to be in a two-year-old's brain? Why do they get so wound up about you giving them the wrong collared cup, for example? If we interpret them as adults, we think they're doing that deliberately. They're being annoying. They're being awkward. We ascribe negative intentions. Actually, they don't get that the drink is the same when it's in different cups. That's just a a fact of, of children's brains and understanding. So when we see it that way, then we're less likely to jump to those negative conclusions. And we can be a little bit more empathetic about what's it like being a young child who really doesn't understand the universe and who is genuinely surprised when things go wrong that you would have predicted, but they can't. Is there such a thing that you can actually flick a switch and actually go from parent to work and then work to parent? I think we have to. Now, I don't think there's a single way to do that. I think each person will find their own way. Some people are happier to blend. Others want a very distinct transition between the two. So I try and give advice on some good ideas, really simple things like changing clothes, you know, having a different set of clothes for work and home, or even just having a moment where you focus on your child before you meet them and either look at a drawing they've done or a photo or imagine them and spend a minute just allowing those feelings to surface around your child so that when you meet them again, you're picking them up from nursery, from school, or they're walking through the door, whatever it is, you're actually a little bit closer to that mode rather than still stuck in your sort of efficiency thinking. You could effectively imagine that switch and the switch is actually thinking about your child to move from one brain set to the other. What if you sort of want to blend so it's a little less structured? Well, I think we're all having that challenge at the moment if we're working from home, for example. So having to work from home, we're more likely to have children around us and we have to be a bit more seamless. But I still think... Being aware that it's a different set of skills, being aware that you might be in your work mode, that you might be being a little bit task focused and manic. So doing things like playing. So playing is another wonderful hack for even for just 15 minutes, wholeheartedly playing with a child 
takes you into that more childish zone that you need to be in to be in your parent mode. So we can be more seamless about it, but just raising awareness of am I stuck in one particular mode right now, it can be very helpful in helping us access that set of skills quickly. I 100% get the idea that you want to get into the children's mindset. I think that's absolutely wonderful. But there are times when you need to get the children into your mindset or somehow you need to be able to communicate between the two. So, for example, I'll give you something that happened to me. I often travel with my dog on trains. Small children and dogs are sort of like magnets for each other. But if you're going to get off at one stop with your child, you have to get off at that stop because you don't want to go two stops further down because the child is engaging with the dog, but you want to get the child off the train without having a tantrum. So how do you do that? Well, I do think sometimes we assume that children know what we want from them. So one of the things I think is really helpful with managing that kind of behaviour is being very clear what does good look like? So before you get to the stop, even before you get on the train, you could talk about what are the rules for being on the train. So on the train, we hold daddy's hand or we sit next to daddy. And when it's time to get off, we have to go quickly to do that. So we set out in advance and we maybe even practice that with them in a playful way so that they've got a chance to do that. And we remind them and then we positively reinforce it. Because quite often what we label as misbehaviour is really just a clash of either understanding or priorities between adults and children. Children's priority is to play. That's how they wire up their brains and understand the universe. So if you want them to stop playing, and do something that an adult needs them to do, we need to help prime them as to what that's going to look like and give them a chance to be ready for that rather than assuming that they can switch out of their play mode really quickly. And what I've seen work really well under this circumstance is somebody actually saying to the child, oh, it's our stop next. What do we do at our stop? And the child said, we get off. And then the mother said, well, you're going to have to say goodbye to Pumpkin. That's the name of my dog because our stop is coming up next. And the child was sort of prepared for this. It worked absolutely beautifully. No problems at all. There was no tantrum of saying goodbye to the dog. Absolutely. Because, you know, they've had a chance to transition from one moment to another moment. And getting children to repeat the rules actually shows you that they've internalised them and it helps them to learn those rules. Rather than being reactive, when they do get it wrong, when they are having that tantrum, trying to set them up to succeed in advance by making it clear what's going to be expected in what might be a, you know, a slightly difficult situation for them. Now, we have the parent switch, we have the work switch. Do you think there's such a thing as a partner switch as well that you need? I have a lot of conversations with parents that do talk about conflict with partners, obviously, whether that's, you know, around children or not. It's particularly difficult, I think, if one parent is coming home from work to another parent who's been at home all day with children. And that often is a, a difficult moment, trying to balance different needs. Because, you know, I, I firmly believe that for a family to be happy, everybody has to thrive. Everybody has to have an opportunity to have their needs met. And, and often when it comes to partners, it is about balancing different needs. We automatically prioritise children's needs or try to, 
but trying to negotiate each other's needs. And I, I think that can be really difficult to talk in that way without blaming. Because what I see quite a lot, because obviously I have spent many hours with couples fighting about their children, is that often one partner has become the child expert and the way they believe that it should be done is the right way and everything else is wrong. And it's actually very difficult to have a discussion without getting into that right and wrong trap. That's certainly something I've encountered as well. So how do you help parents where one is the expert and the other person, because maybe they spend less time with the child, their views are less important and one person is expected to help and they see it actually not as helping, but being directed like the person has still got their work switch on. I think there's two things that are important to think about there. One of them is, you know, what counts as being right in parenting. And the research on parenting is quite clear that good parenting is about combining boundaries with love and warmth. So firm but kind, warm and loving, but with some clear boundaries. That makes good parenting. However, within that, each individual decision is a judgment call. There isn't a right or wrong in one moment of exactly how you should put those together. So I try to talk to parents about the fact that nobody in a parenting team has a monopoly on being right, that it isn't about being right. You're making different judgments in that situation. I think the second issue is practice. Being with children and, you know, looking after children is a skill. You get better at it the more you do it. You know, and the more you have to influence a child's behaviour and manage it, the more likely you are to find good ways of doing that. So if one partner isn't getting the opportunity to practice, they're going to find that hard. So actually, both partners need to be empowered to spend time having that practice. So I think thinking about those issues is really important. It isn't about one person being right. It is simply about making different judgments and talking about those judgments in a way that understands that you both bring value to that team. Because both parents, even if you have a different style, are bringing value to a parenting team. And looking for the value that each parent brings. And I think that's actually really important because often those differences can actually be strengths. You know, one person is sort of very focused and very much with discipline and uh, you've called it boundaries. And I think that's a much better word, but they're very keen on the boundaries. And another person actually can be much better at spontaneity. If you combine the two together, it's actually much stronger. But people often hold on to their part really firmly because they feel that the other person is going to be so spontaneous, there's going to be no boundaries. And the person who's being spontaneous thinks there's going to be so many boundaries, there's no room for spontaneity. And it's really, really easy to get stuck in your camp. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, communication is key there. Being able to collaborate and problem solve together in a way that does try and break down the either or. And understanding, certainly in the course of a child's life and sometimes in the course of their day, there will be times when one of your strengths is actually the important one and another time when the other parent's strength is the important one. So knowing that they both are important, it's how to balance them. And I've got an idea for you. How's about this? You're both right. Absolutely. And, and th th those are words that I often use. 
To be fair, I have worked with parents who are extreme in their parenting and who I would say, no, that's wrong. You can't do that. But that is rare. That is social services involvement. That is a very rare situation. In the vast majority of times, both parents are just making a slightly different judgment, but they both have value and they are both right. It's how do we together put those into a package that we both respect. Brilliant. Brilliant. So do you think that it's possible to lose sight of yourself when you are a parent? And if you do, what's the impact of that? I think it's absolutely possible to lose sight of yourself, particularly for working parents. Some people are lucky and they find their sense of identity and self in their work. So therefore, in that equation, they've got something that gives them identity. But for many people, we've been told that being a good parent is about being self-sacrificing. It's about putting the children first. We, we sort of over-interpreted this need to love our children unconditionally to be, well, I'll do anything for my children. I'll do everything for my children. So we've we're parenting more, we're parenting harder, as well as more of us being working parents and, and working more hours and commuting further. And something's got to give. And, and very often it's parents jettisoning their own well-being, things like hobbies. So when I was a kid, my sort of memories of the weekend are of tagging along behind my dad to every cricket club in the whole of the southeast of England, basically being abandoned in a park or sometimes just even a, a patch of grass to look after myself, find whatever ch other children were there and play while he played cricket. Now, that was a family weekend. Whereas if you look at what people do now, they're much more likely to be taking their own children to their sports. They're going to be going to kids' cricket or football or ballet or ice skating or whatever it is. And we're designing our free time around children's activities. And where are the adults in that? Where is our sense of meaning and purpose if, if we do that? And it's funny because obviously we're of a similar kind of age. I think I'm a bit older than you, but I would go to the rugby club where my parents would watch rugby. And exactly like you, I would be finding other children to play with somewhere in the rugby grounds. And then there was the tennis club as well in the summer, where once again, you would just hope there'd be other children around. And obviously, my sister was there as well. So we would play together. But that idea that the children come first and the adults come 100 years afterwards is a sort of much more of a modern idea, isn't it? It is. I mean, I would argue that leaving children to their own devices to play is incredibly good for them. And if you then as an adult also get to recharge your batteries and have some meaning in your life through a hobby or an activity, then that could be a very good balance. Whereas if we're constantly rushing children from one place to another, we are on the verge of over-parenting, of doing too much for our children. And we we are losing out on that. The impact of that in terms of our stress, our ability to recharge and relax. And we feel like we've got to perform as parents. We've got to be incredibly good at parenting. We mustn't fail at it. Whereas I don't think we really had that sense of judging ourselves as parents quite so much in the past. It was just, well, as long as you bring them up okay and teach them right for wrong and feed them, then that, that's all that was required. We've written a big job description for modern parents. Right. So what would you chop out of the job description for modern parents then? I think 
a lot of it. I think this taking children around from club to club and activity to activity is not necessarily a great thing to do. Obviously, we want children to have hobbies, but we also want them to have some downtime, some time to free play, some freedom to roam. And being able to do something as a family, that is about all of you gaining. Now, I'm not sure when families go to theme parks and they stand in those queues that they are necessarily doing things that they think all of them enjoy. A lot of the time, the adults aren't necessarily enjoying those. So trying to find things to do that you enjoy doing with your kids and really focusing on that. When we do that, that's good for our well-being, but it's great for children because when we enjoy being with them, we convey that to them in our body language, in all of our communications. That's brilliant for their self-esteem because what they think is, oh, wow, dad's enjoying my company rather than dad's annoyed because he's brought me to this place that he doesn't want to be at and we're having to wait in a queue for 40 minutes. So trying to find things that everybody enjoys. Do you think people have a tendency to live through their children? I think it does happen with some parents. We particularly want them to succeed. So we, we've taken on board perhaps a little bit too much, some of us, those benchmarks, whether it's GCSE results or SATs or whatever it is, we do want our children to be seen to be successful, to have some of those badges of success. And that's tough because children develop at different rates. You know, previously, children used to be called late developers or late bloomers if they, you know, if they were a teenager who perhaps wasn't excelling at school. Whereas now they're called underachievers, that somehow they failed if they haven't done it. And we've bought in a little bit to that as parents. And we we signal all of those things. You just have to look at social media, don't you? And parents putting, you know, oh, my son got man of the match or, you know, oh, my daughter got a medal in this. And of course, we're proud of them. But perhaps those badges of success are not as important as we think they are. And we need to, to recognise that. So here is a revolutionary idea. The best thing you can do for your children is to develop yourself and actually follow your path and your journey. What would you say to that idea? That somehow, if you're doing your stuff, you're going to be less likely to be living through them, putting pressure on them. You're actually showing them that it is possible to have a, a I don't want to use the word goal because I don't like that word, but a project to actually have things that make your life meaningful and go for them and be yourself rather than living through them. Absolutely. I think good parenting, it's Part of that is about looking after yourself so you're able to be that calm, consistent parent and loving parent. But it's also about having opportunities to grow, opportunities to thrive. That will model to children how to lead a good life, but will also mean that you're not frustrated. And frustration as a parent comes out at us being short-tempered with people, you know, whether that's partners or children, and, and, and feeling like we haven't got the life that we want. Now, that's not conducive to good connections and good relationships. So it is an essential ingredient, I think, in parenting to look after yourself and to give yourselves opportunities to thrive and grow. Now, you've had experiences with blended families because you've got stepchildren as well as your own children. What, what have you learned from that experience? 
what I've learned from that is that each situation is slightly unique. I also come from a blended family. You know, I have step parents myself. Um, so I've experienced it on both sides. So let's have, first of all, what it was like as a child for you. What what did your parents get right? And what would you have liked them to have done differently? I think, you know, I never had any doubt that my parents loved me, for example. They did come from that 70s school of of benign neglect, but I never felt that, you know, I wasn't loved by both of my parents. And that's a really important thing, I think, if you are separating or setting up new homes, that children have that sense that they are loved. That is incredibly important, I think. And I think, you know, my parents did that well. And what would you have liked them to have done differently? I think in that age, children weren't really explained things or involved in decision making. So there wasn't that sense that how would you like this to be? How would you feel about this? And I and I think probably as a parent, I am more consultative with older children, not with younger ones. You know, it's not necessarily appropriate. And I would advocate a slightly more consultative, collaborative approach when it comes to blending families. So give me an example of how that would sound on the ground. So if you've got a decision being made about, you know, new rules in a house. So when you blend families, you know, often the new parent coming in or, you know, as a new couple, the the ground shifts and the rules are going to change a little bit. And sitting down with children and talking about that rather than just saying, this is the way it is. You have to do the washing up now. That's the new rule of the house. Or, you know, whether it's small or big rule. But that, that sense of trying to create bonds by creating joint rules and a collaborative approach. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. My guest this week is Anita Clear, who's the author of The Work Parent Switch. And we're talking about parenting, getting the balance right between work and parenting and what makes for a meaningful life. And if you'd like to support this project and become part of my supporters club, please do go to my website, Andrew G. Marshall forward slash podcast, and you can find out how to become a supporter. And the great advantage of being a supporter of this project and this podcast is you get all sorts of wonderful benefits. You'll have them all explained to you on my website. But one of them is having the chance to write into us and have your issues discussed. And I've had this letter, Anita, and I'd very much like to hear your thoughts on this. My wife has told me she doesn't love me. We've been married for almost 16 years. We have a very active life with two demanding careers, two active, beautiful little girls who are six and nine, and life got in the way. My wife has also recently added another big stress to our life. She's taking her executive MBA. Since my wife's confession, I've really focused on being a good husband and father by being helpful, attentive, and trying to recreate the spark that is lost for my wife. I felt like I was trying everything, and when I didn't see results, I got really sad and depressed. Unfortunately, my kids have seen my sadness as well. My wife has given up hope and has told me so, but hasn't left yet. 
Partly, I think she's scared of what will happen, but also because we have so much going on in our life right now, we just couldn't manage being separated. I feel like I'm doing everything and getting nothing back. I know I have to be selfless, but it is so hard. So, any thoughts, Anita? I mean, that does connect, doesn't it, with some of the things we've talked about, about losing yourself in in a family, in a relationship. I think it's quite interesting that I found, certainly in my sort of private practice with parents, that depression in parents connects quite closely to a sense of incompetence or inadequacy. So particularly as a parent, but that sense of not being enough. And, And that is something that a lot of parents talk about, feeling like they're not good enough, that they're not doing enough, that they're they're not achieving enough in some way. And that sense of trying to be helpful and attentive, but not seeming to do the right things. We often do feel like we aren't good enough. And and I think that connects very closely with the depression that's being described here. So how do you deal with I'm not good enough? It's quite interesting, isn't it? I'm a real advocate of positive psychology and things like just looking for positives and practicing things like gratitude. So one of the things I advise parents to do if they're finding it hard either to connect with their children or they feel like they're a rubbish parent is at the end of each day to think about each child that they have individually. And for each child, think of three nice, lovely, positive things that that child did that day. Now, they might be nothing to do with you as a parent. It might be the beautiful smile that they had at a particular time, a silly joke. But to really think about that and just be grateful and and focus on those positives. When we do that, it's really powerful because it's quite transformative. It makes us feel like, well, they are wonderful little people. And therefore, I can't have been so bad at this. And we start to see the positives the more we look for them. And if we then tell children about them, so the next stage I would say is, so when they do something like that, tell them about it. At that moment, say, when you spot it, go, oh my goodness, what a beautiful thing you just did. And that will then transform their behaviour, how they feel about themselves, and it starts to snowball into something a little bit more positive. And what about if it's good enough for your children, it's good enough for your partner too? You could actually think of something that you are grateful for from your partner. And when they do it, actually say it, you know, I really appreciated that cup of coffee or whatever it is that they did. Absolutely. Relationships are built on small, tiny moments that then add up into a pattern. So if you want to change your relationship, Don't focus on the big picture, focus on the small little moments and try and influence those. Obviously, children pick up on the atmosphere in the house. And in this house, it's obviously a very sad house. How do you deal with your children's sadness? We have a tendency, I think, to want to fix our children's emotions. And actually, one of the best things we can do as a parent is just that simple kind of empathetic response of acknowledging whatever their emotion is and listening. So going to a child and saying, you know, you seem a little bit sad at the moment. You know, I see this. I see you behaving in this way. And seeing if they will talk to you. Now, children don't always like to open up. But, you know, there are ways that we can talk with them. But being prepared to listen without thinking, oh, my goodness, that sadness is my fault. I need to make that sadness go away. 
actually helping our children work through their emotions in that really healthy way. And once again, if it's good enough for your children, it's good enough for your partner too. You can actually listen. I mean, that's what I'm going to say to my to our correspondent is actually listen to your wife's upset and don't feel you have to fix it. If you can just listen and empathise and say, oh, that sounds hard, without thinking, oh my God, I've done something wrong and getting defensive, or going on the attack and criticising them, or trying to fix them and tell them, well, it's not as bad as all that. Just listening and empathising will have a huge impact. And I think that sometimes we have to be really clear what we mean by empathising, because it's a big word and it's quite a value-laden word. Okay, so explain it for me. So, So being able to say what we mean is reflect back to them what you've heard and what you've seen. So whether it's a child or an adult, being able to say, it looks like you're sad or I hear you saying that you're angry with me. Rather than responding just summarising and reflecting something back as a way of saying, this is what I've heard. And if you've got it wrong, they can say, no, that's not the case. And if you've got it right, you've established a connection because they feel heard. So that really simple act. Now, on my website, I actually have a video called Reflective Listening, where we actually try this out and you can actually do it together as a way of actually really hearing each other. So have a look at uh, that. I'll put the details of that on our show notes. We're also going to have all the details of the different blogs and the books and everything you need to know about Anita and her work. That'll also be on the, the show notes too. So I've sort of asked you here as a witness about what makes life meaningful. For you, what is it that makes your life meaningful? And is it different now your children are grown up from when they were small? I think I've always had quite a constant sense of meaning. I've I've meandered in my ways of trying to express it and find it. And I can't tell you exactly where it came from, whether it's the values that I learned as a child. But To me, it is about my footprint in terms of my impact on other people and whether that is positive and whether or not that's negative. And for me, my meaningful life is one in which I have tried my best and inevitably failed sometimes and not being able to do as much as I want, but I've tried to have a positive impact in a mindful way. And did that change when your children left home? Um, it certainly gave you more, a bit more time, doesn't it? It does, but I don't think it has changed. I remember being about eight years old and thinking, oh, what would I like to do when I grow up? I'd like to run a children's home. Now, I didn't know what a children's home was in those, you know, at that age. I'd never experienced one. But it was that sense of actually what I want to do is to do the right thing for people. So, Now that my children are older, the right thing is different from when they were younger, but it's still that act of the people around me, whether it's extended family or community or the people I work with, trying to be genuinely helpful in some way. Well, Anita, thank you very much for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. It's been absolutely brilliant. 
As I say, all the details about Anita on the show notes. And this is the point where we say goodbye, but a reminder about the Supporters Club, because if you're a member of our Supporters Club, you get to hear the rest of our conversation. And we're going to find out the three things that Anita knows to be true, because I think my experience is the further we go in life, the less we seem to know. But we do find some deep inner truths and Anita is going to very kindly share those with us. So thank you for being my witness today. And I look forward to speaking to you in the Supporters Club. If you'd like details of how to join our Supporters Club, and there are all sorts of other benefits as well, different tiers, you can find the details at Andrew G. Marshall forward slash podcast. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.